As you take your seats, take out your Bibles. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 25. And we continue with Paul in the public eye. Paul living his life out in a very, very, very public way. And he's going to, again, be grilled summarily tonight. And you may be asking yourself, you know, what can we really glean from another trial? But there's a number of things in this, most of this passage tonight. We're not going to quite finish chapter 25. We'll get close. Before we do that, remind you that on Tuesday, uh, part of our group leaves Wednesday. The rest of our group leaves uh, for Israel. So for the next couple of Sunday nights, got uh, Pastor Dennis next week, Pastor Greg the week after. Uh, Sunday morning next week, we have Charlie Campbell going to be joining with us. So if you've never been here for uh, any of Charlie's teaching, great apologist. So he'll be sharing. Uh, we, we're going to have uh, National Day of Prayer and a few other things going on. So pray for us while we're in Israel. And we'll actually be uh, in the theater that Paul is in that we talked about, showed you last Sunday Uh, That very same theater that Paul would be in as he stands before the judgment seat uh, of the king, uh, as we'll see it tonight, which is really one of the Herods. And so tonight, Acts chapter 25, and just to remind you that chapter 24, chapter 25, chapter 26 are these incredibly powerful politicians, and we as the church uh, end up interfacing with politicians, with civil government, with people who are in positions of power. It was no different then than it is now. And in fact, even purchasing buildings like this, you're, you end up dealing with uh, the governmental rulers. You have to apply for a conditional use permit to be able to use buildings for the purpose for which you intend to use them. And you, you go before city councils and governors and rulers and all kinds of people Uh, And the question is, how are you going to respond when you get in those environments? Because they very often are hostile. Uh, The world does not see things the same way that we as the body of Christ do. They don't see importance uh, very often in, in the role of the church in the world. And very often they're actually antagonistic towards people of God and very specifically towards people who actually teach God's word and preach it authoritatively. And so the Apostle Paul is going to stand before the second of three men. Felix is now going to be replaced uh, by Portius Festus. And so this string of rulers of the region of Judea. And remember these guys, we would look at them basically as governors, but they're uh, really almost like the, you know, maybe the mayor of a very large city or, or perhaps uh, someone who's the, the county uh, supervisor would be a better way to look at it. And so here we have this next ruler that comes up in line, and Paul is going to stand before him. And he's going to, for the first time, actually really plead the case that he's in fact a Roman citizen, entitled to all that is afforded a Roman citizen, and tonight we'll find him actually request to be sent Uh, ultimately to face Augustus Caesar. And so as we turn our attention now, uh, we begin this second uh, time before one of the great rulers of the land of Judea. And so would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the wonder 
of your word, for the majesty of your word, for the way it speaks to our daily lives, even though this is a story of a man whose life was lived nearly 2,000 years ago, it still is applicable to us today. So many things to be gleaned from it. Pray that you would speak to us now by the power of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you remember, as we left Paul last week, if you were with us, uh, he spends the better part, actually a little more than two years, going back and forth in front of the last governor of the region, Uh, Felix. And so now he comes before Festus, verse 1 here in Acts 25. And now when Festus had come into the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And again, up rather than up like we normally use north and south for those ordinal directions. Uh, This is up in elevation. He's going from sea level uh, to the city of Jerusalem, which is uh, more than 2,000 feet Uh, above sea level so he's traveling up in that regard and after three days he goes up to Jerusalem and then the high priest and the chief of the men of the Jews informed him against Paul and they petitioned him so here he goes almost back to square one so the the first governor hears the case Uh, Paul basically is is really not sentenced he's kept in essence in under arrest in Caesarea Maritima Uh, They're on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, about 60, 65 miles, depending on which way you go, uh, north of the city of Jerusalem. But this new governor is going to waste no time. He's going to basically dig right in. He's trying to prove his political mettle. And this is one of those things that we run into uh, whenever we have newly elected officials. And even though you may have a standing history as someone who knows the Lord, Uh, With the last guy who was in office, you ultimately end up having to prove yourself and prove your case. And so here comes Festus, who is the procurator, if you will. That's his real title uh, from AD 58 to about AD 62. So just four years. There's not a whole lot known about this guy other than for the most part, there's a favorable review by Flavius Josephus, uh, the the Roman historian who is also uh, a, a Jewish man. And so Uh, Luke's going to kind of give us a little picture here that in that time uh, here these three days are spent but he takes no time and he just boom he's off on a mission so to speak. The first thing that we see here is we're all forced to wait on God's timing. The first thing that we see in this passage that Paul is waiting on the Lord and it's often a necessary ingredient of our lives that we live out while we're here on this earth. You would think after going back and forth in front of Felix that for two years somebody ought to say, hey, let's just let the guy go. And you would think that God, working in his sovereign plan, would see that Paul's going back and forth. And from our human perspective, you might even be tempted to say, this is kind of unfair. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, the guy that plants all these churches. You would think that God would deliver him out of this this situation almost instantaneously. But I can tell you that waiting is an essential ingredient in the life of a believer. You're going to have times when you think God is late. You will have times when you think God is even early. But most of the time, you're going to be waiting for the Lord to work the things that He needs to work before He answers your specific situation. And you're going to be looking at it from your perspective. God's going to be looking at it from His perspective. Amen? An eternal one. 
And so what ultimately happens is our time frame is usually quite short. I see this so very often when I'm doing marital counseling. And there's been some kind of harm or damage done to the relationship. And one or the other, the husband or the wife, and rather than point out either's uh, position in it, uh, I'll just simply acknowledge the fact that, yes, this happened. There was a situation that caused tremendous hurt and harm to the other partner. And, and to the person who's repented and said, I'm so sorry, I, I have no idea uh, why I even engaged in whatever it was, whatever behavior it was, that person has repented, and, and they're thinking that the following day the marriage is going to be completely restored. Well, it's not going to be completely restored because it's not just the wife, it's other people. It's not just the husband, it's other people. It's not just that singular relationship. The tentacles of that has moved throughout all of the sphere of influence of that entire couple. And God is now setting about working in every single one of those things to bring about his conclusion to the matter. And so it very often takes a lot longer As God is at work, when we're asking the Lord to work by his sovereign hand for his perfect will, you can almost count on it taking longer than you think it's going to take. So be patient. It's necessary. God is a sovereign God. And he's dealing with the lives of billions of people simultaneously. Have you ever pondered that for a moment when you think about how God ought to handle things from your perspective? Because we all think that way. If you're normal and rational, you often think, you know, so how come God's taking so long to answer this question? Answer this prayer. Well, the first answer is nearly 7 billion other people on the planet. He's got a few things to do simultaneously. Amen? And he's got all of your family and your children, your extended family, your work life, your home life, your physical situation, your health situation. He's got all those things in view all day, every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. God is working out his plans simultaneously with the plans of seven billion other people. So there's a few little details that you're probably unaware of. Give God time to work those things out. What do you do when you're waiting on God? Now, I've often wondered how the Apostle Paul felt as he's sitting in a jail cell in Caesarea. He's looking out at the Mediterranean. Herod's palace is out there on the peninsula, and and, and he's just sitting there and going, man, I can't believe that I'm stuck here when the beach is right there. I, I don't know why God wouldn't let me go. What happens to you? Do you get anxious? Do you get angry? Do you get upset with God? Do you get short with God? Do you distrust Him? Are you tempted to believe that maybe He doesn't have your best interest in mind? I would simply ask you to remind yourself in those times of all the incredible passages of Scripture that remind us of who God is. And that he is absolutely 100% of the time sovereign and he absolutely has it all under control. And if you'll do that, then you can rest. If you don't do that, you're going to be very anxious. 
You're going to try and be tempted, maybe even to help God out. And I'm sure Paul was thinking about helping God out right here. What could he say to maybe influence people rather than just simply telling the truth, which we're going to see him do? Paul was undoubtedly using his time wisely. Even though he's waiting, he's working. Don't forget to work right where you're at while you're waiting. Because God's got a plan and a purpose right there. I was going through some scriptures just pointing to the sovereign hand of the Lord. You know, all the way back to the book of Exodus, when you, when you think about who God is, the Jewish people there in Exodus 15, he, he is the Lord who will reign forever and ever. And in other words, he's king of everything for all time. You know, he, he's, he's not just kind of, well, sometimes he makes good decisions and sometimes he doesn't make good decisions. No, his kingdom is forever. Who has claim against him, Job said. You know, you could just go on and on and on. That 24th Psalm that I love so much. The earth and the fullness of it is the Lord's. Everything's his. And he knows what to do with everything that's his. He's not going to mess up with that regard. Ezekiel 18 actually says, For every living soul belongs to me, says the Lord. Everybody, believers and un. Sometimes we almost think, well, there's, there's, you know, it's just God's kids. No, everybody actually belongs to the Lord, but people choose to reject his lordship, his saviorhood. They say, I don't want you ruling over me. The same thing that the Jewish people said when, when he was about to be crucified. We don't want this man ruling over us. But he still owns you. You were created in his image by him. The book of Colossians makes that very clear, as does the book of Romans. For without him was nothing made that was made. And by him and through him were all things made that were made. And all things exist for him. So he's sovereign. He's got you right square in sights. Knows where you're at. The next thing that we see is the world often plots our demise. It's amazing how often you hear about, well, the church is dying. There was a bumper sticker that floated around during most of the 70s, and it simply said, God is dead. I hate to inform them, oh, no, he's not. (laughs) He's very much alive. Pick up with me in verse 3. And asking a favor against him that he could summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So the Jewish leaders are still seeking for a way to kill the Apostle Paul. They've had two years before the last governor to try and prove their case. I've been involved in an awful lot of church construction projects. And I've actually been involved in church construction projects internationally. Building camps, conference centers, Bible colleges, all those kinds of things. You cannot believe the extent to which municipalities and governors, rulers of civil government, you cannot believe the extent to which they will go to try and stop anything that has anything to do with the Lord. 
We've gone in and had perfect submittals and all of our plans in order, every single report that they've asked for, and the moment they find out it's going to be a church, well, you know, it doesn't produce any tax revenue. And so you, you listen to their banter back and forth. The world often plots the demise of Christians. The world is no friend to us, in case you haven't figured that out. The world is our, in essence, because it's under the leadership of our avowed enemy, the Lord's avowed enemy, the world is our enemy. It's not our friend. Now, we can learn to get along because we're supposed to love our enemies, amen? So we can, we can learn how to, to deal with that. But don't miss the point that the world doesn't like you. The world, in fact, actually hates you. Jesus actually put it very succinctly. He said, the world hates you because it hated me. So don't miss that. This is not abnormal. So these people look at these, well, that was the Apostle Paul. Of course he's going to go through drama. No, you're probably going to go through drama too. The moment you get found out at work that you're a Christian, oh, will the notes start flying? You'll be... Everybody's going to be watching to see, well, you know, looked at a website. You'll be getting pink slips like they're nobody's business. Just simply because you love Jesus at times. The world doesn't like us. Plotting how to get rid of you. And these politically savvy Jewish leaders during that time, their plan was, hey, if we can get him transferred to someplace else, we'll wait on the road, then we'll kill him. That'll take care of it. They already tried to kill him once. Here's the good news. Guess who wins? God. A sovereign God has got Paul exactly where he wants him. Even though maybe Paul can't quite see that. You can also expect some deadly anger to come your way. Just like it happens here. You're at risk. You know, being a believer can be a risky thing. Having traveled as much as they have, I, I can tell you there are places on this earth that are very unsafe when people know that you're a believer. Ask the Christians that are in Mosul right now. Ask, ask the Yazidis whom the Muslim extremists believe are Christians even though they don't profess Christ. They believe they're Christians, so what do they do to them? Sell them as slaves and murder them. You can expect some deadly anger. Now, right now, we, we live in an age and a time, at least for us, it's fairly safe. But you're going to face some things specifically because you're a believer. Verses 4 and 5, let's pick this up. Because you're also going to face some false accusations. Check this out. But Festus answered Paul uh, that he should be kept at Caesarea. And that he himself was going to be there shortly, going to go there shortly. And therefore he said, to them, said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. Now, we already know that Paul is innocent. Figured that out for two years. They're bantering back and forth whether Paul had done anything against the temple or against the law, whether any of those things had actually happened. It's already been proven that didn't happen. And so guess what? The same silly, baseless, 
false-filled rumor is going to come again. You will face false accusations in your life as a believer. Because if the enemy can't beat you, the enemy will lie about you. Going to lie to you to your friends, going to lie about you to your family, going to lie in the workplace, because the enemy, John eight forty four says, he is the father of all lies, and when he speaks, he speaks out of his own resources of his heart, because he is the father of all of them. Satan doesn't know anything but to lie, and so you would expect people who don't like believers to also lie about believers, Amen. False accusations. And therefore, he speaks to them. He says, look, this is what's going to happen. He, these leaders are saying, no, bring him here. And, and you know, Festus, to his credit, saying, no, let's go back and let's just talk to him there. Paul had to sit and listen to the same exact arguments again. You're going to listen to the same arguments. I have people all the time say, oh, you know, you keep this whole Jesus thing. I can't believe you, you believe that Jesus is the only way. That's just too narrow. You know, you guys are always like that. You know, you just, all you want is, you just want everybody to, to think the way you do. No, I just want them to be saved. And so the same accusations get thrown out. Narrow-minded can't see the truth. Be careful not to imitate this type of behavior as a believer. Don't throw false accusations against anyone, ever. It takes a lifetime to build a character. It can be destroyed in minutes. As believers, we have no business speaking if we don't know, if you weren't there, then you don't have an opinion. One of the most dangerous things that floats around a church is not guns. It's not drugs. It's lips. It's gossip. It's slander. Innuendo. Falsehood. Saying somebody believes something when you don't have a clue whether they believe it or not. Don't do that. Verse 6, And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. So he travels his first three days in office. He makes a decision to go to Jerusalem, some 60, 65 miles away. He spends about two weeks there, listening to all the stories. His ears have been full. He says, we're going back. And, and so he knows, goes back uh, down from Jerusalem to Caesarea, again, elevation-wise, not north-south. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, remember as I told you, I showed you in that picture last week, the Bema, the, the judgment seat, would have been in the center uh, of that wonderful theater, which is still there, seats nearly 5,000 people. And so now the governor's going to take that judgment seat, and he's going to sit in judgment. And the people will come before him. It'll be basically a spectacle publicly. And Paul will present his case. And he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. The picture is this. 
Here comes Festus. He's on the judgment seat. He sits down. He would normally be flanked by two associates, one on his right, one on his left. They would begin to hear this case, and then in front of him would come the person who's the defendant. They would be charged, and in this case, they actually allow all the people that have the charges against Paul to surround the guy. That's the the inference here in the original language. They're literally about him. They weren't beside him. They literally surrounded Paul, and they're shouting at him, Well, you know, you hate the temple, and you hate the law. You tried to defile the temple. This has now been going on for years. These false accusations got serious legs. Lies do that. And I want to strongly caution you, brothers and sisters. When you repeat stories, you see, we see unbelievers doing this. But can I tell you, there's a whole lot of people in the church who are guilty of exactly the same thing. They do this when they should do this. They begin to speak and they pass along that little tidbit. And before you know it, the lie becomes the common understanding of the situation. There's some stuff going on within Calvary Chapel right now that's just, it, it is mind-boggling how insanely based in outright lies some of the things are. And I sit there and I listen to people and I, I try and, you know, it's like, you know, you really probably should go talk to that person because I happen to know them and they don't believe that. But yet there's this whole story little edited video clips about what Brian Broderson believes or doesn't believe. I know Brian personally. I served with the man. I've known him for 30 years. And the accusations that have been leveled against him are patently false. They are false. They're not true. And I don't know that because I'm guessing at it. I know it because I've directly asked him the questions. Brian, do you not believe in the rapture of the church? Of course I believe in the rapture of the church. I just taught on it. Mm. Great. So that video that's on the internet that says you don't believe in the rapture of the church, that would be, yep, that's a lie. And yet people believe it. Because you know everything that's on the internet is true, right? (laughs) You've got to be careful. Because now you've got people wandering around, oh yeah, well I saw it on the internet. Yeah, well, you saw a lie on the internet. Speak the truth in love. And if you don't know something is true, then you have a biblical obligation to go to your brother or your sister and make sure you know before you comment on it. And if you haven't done that, then my advice to you is clamp your lips shut. And don't speak of it, and you go to God with it, and you pray. I don't mean to beat anybody up, but I'm tired of watching people's character be destroyed. Instead of brothers going being reconciled to one another, and sisters being reconciled to one another, and God not being blamed for the division. God gets blamed for this stuff. It is a stain on his character when his people can't get along. And so don't do what the Jews did to the Apostle Paul. 
is my word. Don't be someone who bears a false accusation. Unbelievers, we can expect to do it. Believers, we should never do it. While he answered for himself, verse 8 says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. So when Paul is asked, this is crazy. So you would think, well, Paul's going to change his story. He's been at this two years. Maybe he'll just now confess. It's like they're trying to force a confession out of him. No, what I said two years ago, that's exactly what I mean. I am absolutely faultless in this. I didn't make any accusation against the law of the Jewish people. Matter of fact, I'm faultless of the law myself. I didn't make an accusation against the temple. I was trying to go complete the Passover meal when, when I was accosted by these guys. And against Caesar? No, I'm actually appealing to Caesar. That's why I'm staying here. I've subjected myself willingly to the law of Caesar because I'm a Roman. These same charges have been leveled at him. Now, Paul mentions Caesar as kind of a little new twist in here. He says, look, I'm, I'm faultless in this. See, the interesting thing, and I shared this with you last week, just speak the truth. You don't have to defend the truth. The truth is true. And so once that's out, and you make that your case, you can leave it. It's a beautiful thing. Paul needed to keep the Roman law involved, actually, for a reason. It's going to actually be the Roman law that's going to end up saving his life, ultimately. He'll lose it eventually, but his whole goal was to get to Rome, amen? God uses strange and mysterious ways to accomplish his will, including false imprisonment. Verse 9, he goes on, But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, political expediency often is in view for us as the body of Christ. And here we see it. Answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And so Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. So there it is. There's the reference to the Bema seat. There's that place where judgment was rendered place that scripture says one day you and i are all going to stand before the judgment seat of christ to be judged for the works that we've done in this body with those things that uh, you could put in the category of lord that was for you to receive those crowns of reward he said i stand at caesar's judgment seat where i ought to be judged look this isn't a matter for the temple This isn't a matter for the Jewish religious leadership. This isn't a matter about the law. I did nothing wrong. If you want to judge me, I'm here in a Roman prison under Roman guard. And if you've got something to say to me, let's do it here. Brilliant move on his part, by the way. Unto the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them, so I appeal to Caesar. Look, I've done everything right. I've asked you what I'm supposed to do. You've told me what that is. So he's showing us 
that as believers, once you commit your way to the Lord and you stand in the truth, you can live without fear. You just tell the truth and let God sort out the details. Paul says, look, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And that's not someone who has a death wish. That's someone who has an understanding that God is sovereign. And he knows what he's doing. And he's trusting. Festus could have done it some other way. Felix could have done it some other way. But now that Paul's been in custody for these couple of years, he's just simply saying, look, I'm just going to leave it in God's hands. Paul reminds us, actually, in Romans chapter 1, that he had wanted desperately to go to Rome to preach the gospel. And here's the crazy way God's going to make that happen. I'm going to stay here. You try me here. There are no charges against me as as these people would like you to believe. So until you present a witness, I'm staying right here. Just stand on the truth. Live without fear. Don't turn to the world's ways. You know, I, I see so many situations that come about that just so grieve God because people won't stand in the truth and they begin to do things the world's way. I've watched believers take other believers to court over easily resolvable matters because they're tired of waiting on God. Because they don't think they're going to get a fair shake. What you're really saying is is you don't trust God and you think the other person is going to get the upper hand. God's word is very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we as the body of Christ should not take other believers to court. Period. It's not something that should happen. Sometimes a civil recourse... It's necessary for unbelievers and believers to get engaged in court battles. But your Bible says it's an abomination for a believer to take a fellow believer to court over a civil matter. You ought to be able to resolve that one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And you need to keep working at it until you can. Now, maybe at some point in time, something happens. It becomes a legal matter, and it's snatched out of your hands. But if it's just money, money is of the world. If it causes you to lose your character, if it destroys your witness, it's simply not worth it. Turn those things over to the Lord and let him do what he needs to do. You don't want to follow Festus' example. You don't want to follow Felix's example. You don't want to follow the world's example. Follow the Lord's example. Forgive quickly, frequently, and often those who have offended you. You know how Jesus said it? If your brother wants your cloak, give him your tunic as well. If he wants you to go one mile, walk with him another. In other words, it's not worth it to destroy your relationship. Verse 12, And then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, and answered, Have you appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. So Paul's going to get his wish. You, You see, we can live without fear, and we can just commit it to the Lord. Because in this world, you're going to have some some difficult times. But you rest and trust in the Lord. 
as you release these things to him. Notice verse 13, and after some days, King Agrippa, now King Agrippa is actually Herod Agrippa II. He's the son of Herod Agrippa I, who is the descendant of Herod the Great, the one who built this magnificent city that Paul is now sitting in as he's at the north end uh, of this, this incredible peninsula of land. He's imprisoned in this prison that's right next to the harbor. And, and so he, he's now here, and, and here comes King Agrippa. Now, these people, you see the name Herod. Herod is, is not a name, it is a title. In the Bible, there are actually seven of them. They're all related. They're a family and so this is a nepotistic dynasty of some really messed up people. And so when you think about Herod, you have to kind of identify which one it was. There are several of them in Scripture that are clearly identified. This happens to be Herod II, or Herod Agrippa II. This family ruled the region of Palestine from 40 B.C. to 100 A.D., for 140 years, there was some kind of leadership. It's called the Herodian period. So when you travel to Jerusalem, when we go to the Western Wall, there, the walls that surround Jerusalem today were actually built by the Ottomans in the 1500s. And so they're largely Arabic walls, but they sit on that section of the wall on top of the Herodian walls made of Herodian stones from Herod the Great. He was an incredible builder, but he was kind of the last of the Herods that were worth much. All the rest of them were monumental failures for the most part, and they were extremely evil. This one is particularly sick and particularly demented because the woman that he's married to is actually his sister. So this is an incestuous relationship, and so... After some days, King Agrippa, who's kind of like the regional ruler, you have the governor, that's Festus. Now you have the regional ruler who kind of rules over all of Palestine, if you will, at that time. Named so by the Romans, by the way. And it was named after the Philistines, by the way. King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying there's a certain man left prisoner by Felix. And so here the Apostle Paul is going to get yet another audience with another ruler. About whom the chief priest and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. Now, you can kind of see the political expediency come to view here. That's not what happened. What happened was he was left in prison... The case was unresolved, and so Felix passed along to Festus, and Festus went and got the information himself. The Jews didn't really give that to him. He went and dug up some more garbage is what happened. And so they're asking for a judgment. And so King Agrippa, Herod the Agrippa II, is, is now going to come into the picture. This woman that he's now married to became his mistress after her brother, uh, her brother uh, married the, the, king, the king's daughter of Cilicia. And, and so now this is also the empress's family 
from Caesar Vespasian. So it's like all of this inner family weaving, and it's like it's it's who you know to the max. This is this is like political speak like you can't believe. They're basically all related to one another. And it's the family that you're married into, and in this case, a very uh, debauched family. And so you have a Roman governor that now comes in. And I want to tell you that we see this in the world. The world suffers from really ultimate, uh, pervasive family dysfunction. And you very often have dynasties like this. To where you have one ruler that was great, and you got a couple of kids, and they marry somebody else's kids who are also wealthy, and you know, and before you know it, you have these power brokered couples, and that's exactly what this is. And so, I would say to you, one of the lessons from this as believers: what kind of spiritual legacy are you leaving in your family, or are you leaving dysfunction? The world leaves dysfunction. The world leaves brokenness. The world leaves families that are messed up. The world walks political tightropes. The world does all kinds of juggling of the relationships to try and gain power and curry favor and all of those things. But what kind of legacy are we leaving? Ask the church. Festus made it very clear that the chief priests, the elders, the leaders who had great influence... We're a part of this. Now, the interesting thing is, now the guy that's involved actually is responsible for the appointment of the high priest. So it's even more messed up than it was before. And so Paul does the one thing that he can do to get out of this. He says, I'm appealing to Caesar as a Roman citizen. He takes the way that God leaves them. Another thing that you can see in this passage is you you need to expect a secular understanding, a secular mindset from secular people. You know, it's amazing to me how often people say, well, I can't believe this happened, and follow it with some kind of situation that they're involved in that is almost entirely people who do not know the Lord. And they're shocked that it's actually going a secular way, like God didn't specifically deliver them from all of this stuff. God doesn't intervene all the time in every single thing that we get involved in in life. And so you need to be prepared for the inevitable. If you are involved in a situation that's largely a group of non-believers, it's probably going to go a whole lot like you would think it would with non-believers in control. I I very often end up praying with people over their work situation. They've got, you know, the whole business is filled with people who don't know the Lord. And once it becomes known that they're a Christian and they're, they're not going to cheat on their sales reports and they're going to do things properly and they're not going to give people false dates of completion on when that product's going to get it delivered and they're doing things the right way, they, they often are stunned that they actually might get fired for that. No, you, you may well get fired. You can expect completely secular mindsets from people who do not know the Lord. Now, God can intervene and sometimes does, but he does not all the time intervene. And so be prepared for that. Otherwise, you start to think like God doesn't care about you. Of course, God cares about you, but he doesn't fix every problem that we come across. And in fact, sometimes he allows those problems to go so we'll grow. And so one of the things I always tell you is, well, God must be doing something in your life. 
because he has counted you worthy to suffer that. He's allowed it to happen in your life, so he must be doing something marvelous and wonderful to allow you the privilege of being able to go through that trial because he must believe that you can get through it. So take it as a challenge in a good way. And he goes on now in verse 16, And to them I answered, Is it not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to the destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face? He's saying, look, you guys have laws. We have laws. I'm a Roman citizen. I am entitled to face my accusers. So are you going to go against that? And has the opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him? And therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. So he says, look, this Ijumean ruler, this man who is half of the Edomites. I remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau goes to what we call modern-day Jordan. Edom means red. He goes to the land that is very red. We'll be traveling there to Petra. Uh, not this coming week, but the week after. And as we travel to Petra, the whole thing is red. If you've seen Indiana Jones and the temple, you've seen Petra. It's red. But in that region, you have these Idumeans. And for political expediency, they're intermarrying with the Jewish people. and They're getting in with the religious leadership and the civil government. And they're all kind of intertwined. And so they're, they're trying to appeal to the various power brokerages that exist in the region. And so King Agrippa is part from the lineage of Esau. In other words, he's half Jewish. And now he's coming into power again. Festus describes the details now of this case. And he, he just says, look, here's the deal. He's accurate. He gives a great report. But the bottom line is, the report's still out there. Verse 18, he goes on, And when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I would suppose. Look, I gave him an opportunity. They didn't say anything. But I had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus. Now, here comes the cool part. All this stuff going around, You're like, man, this is going nowhere. But you know where it's going? It's going for an opportunity for people to hear about Jesus. And that's what you need to remember, and I need to remember. We get in those circumstances, situations. We need to be looking for a way to interject Jesus into the conversation. Not their own religion. A certain Jesus who had died. Now, obviously, he doesn't know that Jesus Christ is very alive because he's still thinking he's a dead Jesus. Whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there to be judged concerning these matters. And so he reviews the the facts. He says, look, you know, what's going on here? Festus gives this description. He he presents the secular mind. He said, look, this dead dude, Jesus. You know, when you tell people about Jesus and they don't know the Lord... 
they are probably not initially going to believe all that you say. Amen? Anybody had that situation happen to them? They're going to question, whether, who is this Jesus guy? What I know about Jesus is there's a whole bunch of lunatic Christians running around the world that say he's the way and the truth and the life. You're going to hear things like that. That's because they don't know the Lord. Spiritual things are spiritually appraised. The carnal mind cannot know them. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. I would say to you, even the word God, the word God has a very different connotation to someone who does not know the Lord. Spending as much time as we did up in the mountains, I talked to a lot of people who had some pretty strange ideas about who God was. We had a guy that lived in Running Springs that believed his dog was God. He actually named him God. So he'd be walking through town and you'd, you'd wave to Rudy and he's, he's, like, he's like, yeah, me and God are doing great. There's God. Half Samoyed, half wolf, I think was what he was. Yeah, that's God. And he literally thought he was God. There was another guy living in Green Valley Lake who believed that the trees were God. He literally had little tree carvings with him and they, had, they talked to him. I've met people that believe that anything and everything's God. There are people on this earth that believe Gaia, Mother Earth Goddess, that Earth itself is God. We're all part of the one cosmic oneness, God. We happen to believe that Jesus Christ, God's own Son, came in flesh and He's incarnate God. We have a very specific belief about God. You see, the Caesars believed in gods, plural. There's a pantheon of Roman gods. So they had a concept of God, but they had no idea that Jesus, whom they thought was dead, was actually alive. And had been raised from the dead. So you have to talk to people in language that they can understand. Because if you just ask them, do you believe in God? You're likely to get, "Uh uh-huh. Ask them who God is. Because that's the important question. Festus' attitude is very prevalent. There's a dead man named Jesus floating around somewhere. That's why we worship the God whose grave is empty. Amen? Very different situation. You go to Westminster Abbey in London, you can see the graves of all the royals. It's pretty cool. Like 500 years of history right there in front of you. But you know what? There's a bunch of bones in those graves. They're dead. They're still dead. They died and they're dead. You, you travel as Connie and I did to Zermatt. You go to the Mountaineer Cemetery. There's, there's a bunch of dead mountaineers in there. They messed up climbing the Matterhorn. Maybe the Weisshorn. Someplace in that region around Zermatt. Their, their graves have a bunch of bones in them. You go to the tomb of the prophet Muhammad in Medina. His bones are in there. It's because he's dead. You see, a lot of people think Jesus is dead. But when you go to his tomb, it's empty. 
But inside of it, there's nothing in there. And I guarantee if the Romans could have produced the bones, oh, they'd have them someplace. If the Jews could have produced the bones, that would still be a major artifact today. Those bones would be somewhere where everyone could know Jesus of Nazareth is dead. There's his bones right there. But they don't have his bones. And his grave's empty. Verse 21. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, that's Augustus Caesar, by the way, I commanded him to be kept until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. And tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. And so this whole drama continues. But Paul now is going to be commanded and sent off to Rome, which was his desire from the very first time that he he got a, a view of the power of Rome. And all this time, and here's what we can take from this passage. All this time, this is the most prominent port city on the Mediterranean coast. Whether you went to Tyre or Sidon, the port cities that were just north of there by a hundred or so miles, every city, as far as the Romans were concerned, those are Phoenician cities. As far as Rome was concerned, Caesarea was it. So all this stuff going on, all the people sitting in the theater going, you know, what's this dude, what Paul all about? Every time these things were brought up, the gospel's getting shared with thousands of people. The buzz around town. Yeah, there's this dude, Paul, from Jerusalem, who's sitting in there. Now Herod is in there. He's in there with the governor and Herod. They're talking about him blaspheming the temple or something, and the guy's saying he didn't do it, and now they're talking about this Jesus guy who's dead. So ultimately, he's sharing the gospel. He's making sure everybody knows about Jesus. And so this very busy, bustling port city, this Roman fortress, is now abuzz with the name Jesus. Because Paul's been under trial. All this crazy family dynamic. It's not doing a bit of good. Doesn't matter uh, how you are connected. It matters who you're connected to. If you're connected to the Lord, then God can use even these types of circumstances and situations for his ultimate good. And so don't miss those opportunities. You get in a situation where you really aren't sure what God's doing, you just tell them about Jesus. You're sitting there in the courtroom, you're in a jury assembly room, start talking to people about Jesus. It's the surest way for you to get released from jury duty. You just tell them, yeah, I actually believe in the Bible. I've done this several times, by the way. You should see the look on their face when you tell them you're a pastor. Really? Do you believe in the death penalty? Well, the Bible does kind of teach on it. Just tell them about Jesus. And let God use you wherever you are. Amen? Would you stand? Let's pray together. Going to invite some pastors to come up, be available for prayer.
as we close and head to our homes, remember God's put you where you are in the situations that you're in to be his mouthpiece, to speak the name of Jesus wherever you go. And so don't look at it like you've been cursed. Look at it like you've been given an opportunity. Amen? Because even those things which seem like there's no way God could use this. There's no way God could use this courtroom setting. There's no way God could use this difficulty at work. There's no way God could use this relationship because it's just too messed up. Man, if anything was messed up, a two-year-long trial that involves false accusations against the Apostle Paul is going to be responsible for spreading the gospel all over the Mediterranean. God can use you right where you're at. And so let him do that. Just take those opportunities to speak the name of Jesus. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you use all things and you work them as your word declares there in Romans 8 and verse 28. You work all things together for the good for those who are the called according to your purposes. And so, Lord, as, as we think on that, Lord, you can use anything and everything. Our, our deepest moments of despair and our highest heights of achievement. And, Lord, may we be faithful to that end. And, God, we are so grateful for what you're doing in our lives. Pray that you would bless each one of us. Watch over us and keep us, God. Continue to use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.